0: So we're in 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Um, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It is quite long. I will try and read it very quickly. But if we don't read the whole chapter, you don't get the full force of what Peter is saying. Because as we approach this chapter, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 1, chapter 1 is all nice and encouraging. It's all about godliness. And then chapter 2 has the not-so-encouraging title of False Teachers and Their Destruction. So, if you want to follow it, it's on page 1155. Hold on to your seats, I will read quickly. But there were also false prophets among the teachers, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For the righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for what they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight, They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Barlam, son of Beza, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, and then turned their backs on the sacred command which was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Interesting. Let's pray. Lord, we need to acknowledge that this is your word to us today. Strange though it may be in part. And we know that your Holy Spirit has breathed life into these words and that it has something deep and important to say to us this morning. So Lord, we submit ourselves under the authority of your word and ask that it will speak to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's an article in the news the other day about the Spanish Navy. I don't know if anyone read it. It's not exactly a big topic, is it, the Spanish Navy, for the most part. But apparently the Spanish Navy are building a big new submarine. It's costing £900 million, and it's enormous. But they've had some problems with it. And the first problem they realised is this submarine wouldn't float. It would sink, but wouldn't float. Not much good for a submarine. And so they had to alter the design, and they had to make it a bit bigger in order that it would float. And then they came across another problem. Now that it was bigger, it wouldn't fit in the dock they'd built to keep it in. So now they have to do some alteration works to the dock. So there's an investigation happened. And do you know what had happened? Fourteen years ago, somebody doing a maths calculation had got a decimal in the wrong place. They got a decimal point out. And the consequences were, well, the original article said it's going to cost £1.7 million to put this right. And then there was a correction at the bottom saying, really sorry, it's actually £17 million. You'd have thought they'd have learned the lesson with decimals by that point. Just one decimal point in one sum, and 14 years down the line, you end up with a 17 million pound black hole. Decimal points matter, don't they? Things matter. Sometimes when we get something wrong, it can seem small, but then actually, as life moves forward, it can become very serious. I don't know if you've ever forgotten to um, renew your breakdown cover on your car. Doesn't seem important at the time, but it does when you sat on the side of the M6 in the middle of November in the pouring rain, wondering how on earth you're going to get home. Or perhaps it's that small leak from the radiator. You think, oh, well, it, it'll, it'll mend itself. You know, radiators always do that, don't they? It'll mend itself. And then suddenly you realise you've got a big flood in your house. Or you left a candle burning, and suddenly you realise there's a house fire. You know, just these small things that can get overlooked that then have big consequences. The same, you know, is actually true for the church. The church has always been under threat from people getting things just a little bit wrong that then have massive consequences further down the line. Teaching that seems to be almost right, but actually isn't right, and then as you travel forward in time, things have gone a long way off where they should be. A lot of the New Testament is written because actually there were problems. Paul writes to the book, uh, writes to the church in Galatia, And he says, you foolish Galatians, why have you abandoned the gospel? Why have you gone back into Jewish legalism? Why are you trying to keep all the law again? You've been freed from that. Don't go back there. Paul writes to Corinth, to these people claiming to be superly spiritual by having sort of extra spiritual experiences and whatever else they were claiming. And you can think, well, that doesn't really matter if that's what, what they want to experience. And Paul comes in and says, actually, it does matter. These people are claiming something that they shouldn't be claiming. And now, here we get this passage in Peter, in 2 Peter. Chapter 1 has been all encouraging, about encouraging the church to stand firm in godliness, to stand firm in their calling. But now, we get to a passage about false teachers. These people are going around, they're denying Jesus, they're full of greed, they're full of sexual immorality. And if you read further into chapter 3, you actually find that these same people are denying that Jesus will return and denying that there will be a final judgment. They're saying everything will just carry on as it is. In today's world, we have an awful lot of access to knowledge, don't we? You know, I would imagine most of us today have a device with us that can access the whole sum of human knowledge. And in terms of Christian teaching, you can find whatever you want to read about, from whatever angle you want to read about it. I think... For us today, knowing what the gospel is about is absolutely critical if we're not going to go off course. But we read chapter 2, and it can sound a bit like Peter is on a bit of a rant. I don't know if that sort of came across when I read it. It's like he's just going on and on and on and on. It's sort of stage left, calm Peter exits, and stage right, ranting Peter, angry Peter, livid Peter enters. And just gives us this tirade of stuff about these false teachers. And we could read it and think, well, this isn't very loving, Peter. This isn't very loving at all. What about these false teachers? Surely you should be getting alongside them and nurturing them and trying to to lead them to to better ways. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, supposing my neighbor is walking across a field. And at the edge of this field is a cliff edge. But they don't know it's there. And they're walking and they're not looking where they're going. If I just think, well, that's oh, fine, just let them tumble off the cliff, that's not a problem, and don't do anything about it, my definition of what loving is, is severely lacking. To be loving in that situation is actually to bellow, stop, you're heading for danger. I think this is what we find Peter doing here. He is shouting stop to the church, stop to these f- false teachers, you are entering a place of danger. <clears throat> so what are they actually teaching, what's going on here? Well, if you've got the, the passage, it's probably worth keeping it open because we'll be sort of bobbing around it quite a bit. Um, verse 1, it talks about destructive heresy. The word heresy literally means opinion. So it's destructive opinions, wrong opinions. They are denying the sovereign Lord. So instead of entering life, they are bringing about their own Destruction. Peter doesn't go into too much detail here about what they're doing by denying Christ, what actually is is they're denying. But if we take what it says in um, chapter 3, verse 4, about them saying that Jesus isn't coming back and how um, there's going to be no final judgment, I think we can probably be on safe ground to say they're somehow denying the lordship of Christ, that Christ is God, the fundamentals of the gospel. Verse 10, it says they have corrupt desires and despise authority. they set themselves up, if you like, as independent people. They're not submitting to the authority of the apostles. They're not teaching what has been passed on to them. And then we get that strange bit about heaping abuse on celestial beings. What on earth does that mean? We could be here all day trying to unpack exactly what that means. But it appears that actually what they're doing is going beyond the remit of a human being. Because what Peter says is even angels don't heap abuse on fallen angels when bringing God's judgment on them. Even they won't do that. This is for God to do alone. And yet here are these people, full of depraved conduct, full of heresy, and what they're doing is they're coming and taking a role that shouldn't be theirs. So they think they are somehow spiritually important. Verse 13, it says, they revel in pleasure while they feast with other Christians, but their eyes are full of adultery. Basically, they want to have sex with other people's husbands and wives. They keep sinning, and they're full of greed. And then verse 17, the results of their behavior are brought under the spotlight. They entice people who are just escaping from error, from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but it says they themselves are slaves of depravity. So Peter takes us on a journey, if you like. He starts off with explaining that they've got the wrong view of Jesus. And you see, once you get the wrong view of Jesus, everything else starts to unravel. As you go further down the line, you end up in places that perhaps you'd never originally meant to go. But the whole lot, the whole lot of their thinking, their behavior starts to unravel. And by the time you get to verse 21, Peter says, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to do what they've done here. When I was at theology college, and there was a lecturer who once said this. He said, I believe God is in Christ. Can we agree with that? Not too bad. But then he put a question mark next to the next bit of the question, but he said this, but is Christ in God? Question mark. Now he sat there in the lecture thinking, okay, what's this man actually on about? But is Christ in God? There's somebody who I trained with sat at the back here, so he's nodding, he probably knows who I'm talking about. Um, But actually, if you say, is Christ in God? and you start reading the whole of the scripture through that lens, everything starts to unravel. Because you lose the incarnation. If if God isn't in Christ and Christ isn't in God, Jesus isn't fully God. So the Trinity goes. The incarnation goes. If that goes, the work of Christ is gone as well. So there is no assurance of forgiveness. What about the resurrection? Well, that probably goes as well, just for good measure. What about the second coming? Well, if you've lost the rest, then that might as well be sidelined as well. And so just by a decimal point, if you like, Five words when it's against measured over the whole of Scripture doesn't seem like anything. Yet the result is the whole of your faith has unraveled by the end of that journey. Everything has pretty well gone. We don't use the word theology that much, but theology is a word theos is the Greek word for God, and ology just means study of God, what we think about God. You know, all of us this morning are theologians. All of us. We're here because we're thinking about God in some way or another. And the question is, are we good ones or not good theologians? Is our thinking about God accurate when measured against what the Word of God says? Or have we started putting decimal points in that actually make it inaccurate? Because there's a real problem with this false teaching because it's leading people not to life, but to death. Peter cares massively about these people who he's writing to. You can tell that in his letter. You don't get so sort of angry and incensed in a righteous kind of way if you're not actually passionate about people. And he's passionate that people are being led back into captivity. It's as if the gospel has opened the prison doors. You know, the the hymn, and can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay. My chains fell off, my heart was free. People have walked out of the prison of sin and the powers of darkness. And then what these false teachers are doing is sort of bundling them back in there. And saying this is actually where you need to go, and you got that rather delicate proverb at the end of the passage a dog returns to its vomit. Our dog was sick yesterday, I won't go into details, but it's not pleasant, it is not nice when a dog is sick. But that's what he's saying, they're going back to stuff they should have left behind, and it's as if he's seeing these Christians and he's shouting at the cliff edge, Stop, turn around. You know, there are times when actually to do the loving thing, this one anothering that we've been talking about, does actually mean that we have to challenge one another. does mean that there are times when we have to say, "I think that road that you're going down actually isn't the right one, because of this that it says in the scriptures, because of what Jesus has told us." And Peter, as he's warning, he doesn't hold back. You've probably noticed that as well. Because what he does is he starts talking about destinations for these false teachers. And we get three chronologically ordered examples from the Old Testament. Verse 4 talks about sinning angels, about angels being held in chains, awaiting judgment. You can read a bit more about that in 1 Peter and the book of Jude, which we'll come to in a few weeks' time. He then talks about verse 5, the people of Noah's day. How in the times of Noah, the world was so full of wickedness and evil that God actually said, I wish I'd never made people. They've just turned their backs on me so far. Verse 6, you get the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed by God, again, because they had drifted so far away from the way God wanted people to live. Now, these are all examples of times when people, or, or even angels, had turned their backs on God and actually faced the judgment of God. You know, God is love, isn't he? But God is also holy. In his love, he is holy. And in his holiness, he is the judge of of all the earth. There are times when I look at our news and we see things about children being trafficked for sex. And we see things about migrant crises and the terrible wars in, the, in Syria and around the world. We see things in our own country about how many children in this country will go hungry over the summer because school meals will stop. And about how there is need to just make sure people are fed And we can want to ask the question, God, where are you in all of this? God, why is your justice in all of this? And I think what we need to take from this passage is that God is not silent. God is not silent. The whole point of what Peter is referring to is rebellion against God. All this rebellion that results in all this suffering will be held to account. God will hold the world to account. God is not deaf to the cries of the innocent. But then as we get to verse 7 to 9, it does get a bit more encouraging. We get the story of Lot. Again, it's an Old Testament um, story. And about how he was rescued. He was rescued by God. And Peter's point is, if you hold firm in your faith, if you stand firm on the gospel that has been preached to you, and don't go off with these false teachers, then actually you too will be rescued. The cross is the greatest rescue mission ever, isn't it? As Jesus steps in and rescues us from sin and from the powers of darkness. And that rescue will remain secure. Not quite sure what that's doing there. I think we'll come back to that later. Sorry, I'm having terrible PowerPoint trouble this morning. Standing firm. I don't know about you, but I find this passage quite perplexing. It's quite difficult. It's not an easy passage. Nothing that we read that talks about God's judgment and about false teaching can be easy. But we can read it and think, well, what in a million years has this got to do with me? Anyone here at risk of heaping abuse on celestial beings this afternoon? It's probably not in our worldview, it's not in our mindset. But actually, the more I've thought about this, the more I think actually the church is always at risk from false teaching. We are always at risk of getting that decimal point in the wrong place. Of believing things that appear good, but actually are not what the Bible says. Some of that is probably pretty obvious, hopefully pretty obvious. You know, we could get led astray by atheism. But you might, acknowledge, you might notice that because it doesn't believe in God. Or it might be agnosticism or all kinds of other isms or faiths that don't believe in Jesus, sects that deny Jesus is God. You know, the groups of people who we see hanging around in shopping centres offering a gospel that doesn't believe in Jesus. That is no gospel at all. Then we can have the kinds of teachings that can creep in a little bit more under the radar. You know, those kinds of teachings that still accept that Jesus is who he says he is start to either want to undermine things or add bits to the gospel or add sort of elements that actually really aren't there in scripture. A number of years ago I knew a family and sadly um, the, the mother of this family died but she had been totally convinced that God was going to heal her physically. She believed and she had claimed that healing but it didn't happen. And the saddest thing that I found was that she died without peace, and her family lost their faith, because she'd believed something that actually wasn't in the scriptures. Now, I believe she is healed. She's healed because she's held in the presence of Jesus. But she believed something that went beyond what the Bible said, and she trusted something that wasn't in scripture. Sometimes we can come across teaching that perhaps undermines the need for repentance, Sometimes we can come across teaching that says actually, you know, God loves you just the way you are. Now, that is absolutely true. God loves all of us just the way we are. But he loves us so much, he wants to make us more like him and he wants to lead us on in growth and in holiness. It's not enough to say he simply loves us as we are. And then there's those very subtle things that creep up on us. Perhaps we find ourselves getting grumpy and out of sorts. Do you ever find yourself getting grumpy? Yeah. And we can find ourselves putting decimal points in all over the place, particularly about sort of practical stuff. Let's go back to that quote. If we're not defined by our love for God and characterized by making disciples, then we cannot say we have good theology. You know, if we're not characterized today by loving, by loving one another, by all this sort of one-anothering stuff we've been talking about over recent weeks, then actually is the, is the view that we have of the gospel the right one? Is it in the right place? Are we loving the Lord, our God, with all our heart, with all our minds, with all our strength? If that isn't the case, then I wonder if we've put some decimal points in. We've put some things in that have crept up on us. Or perhaps it's not the fundamentals. Perhaps actually we, we end up getting all strung up about things that are secondary or third rate issues. Titus 3 verse 9, it says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these things are unprofitable and useless. Useless. Sometimes I can find myself getting all het up about things that actually don't matter. And not just theological things, but things like the World Cup or Wimbledon or all kinds of things where I get het up because something that doesn't matter starts to take my time. How do we avoid getting a decimal point in our thinking? How do we avoid getting our thinking and our practice as living out as disciples of Jesus in the wrong place? Do we need to become experts in heresy? Anyone want to come on a heretical course to learn about every heresy? It doesn't sound very good, does it really? Do we need to become experts in what could go wrong? Well, it says in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, if you've got your Bible, you may just want to look a bit further on. It says, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. We need to have our guards up, that is certain. That is what Peter says. Be careful what we read, be careful what we listen to, be careful what we look at on the internet. You know, it may not surprise you to know that everything you read on the internet is not true. There will be things that you will come across that actually will seek to pull you away from the gospel that we find explained in the Bible. Have our guards up. And we need this one-anothering. You know, we were talking about this a few weeks ago, how we shouldn't ever try and be a Christian on our own because we need one another. And if we're not sure about something, you know, chat through it with members of your small group or your prayer triplet or somebody you know in church. Chat over a coffee, whatever it is. Seek the wisdom of one another so that we can discern together what is actually in the Bible and what isn't. Seek the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as we move forward. But more than that, Far more important than knowing what is false is actually knowing what is true. When we gaze in the face of Jesus, when we grow in Christ, when our discipleship is following on behind Christ, then, you know, the kind of fake things fade into the background. They don't look very good. We see through them. We were in um, Lanzarote. We got a last minute break just after Easter. And, um,. There was a really nice walk along the seafront. And along this walk, there were people selling counterfeit goods. And there was this one particular man who kept wanting to sell me a wig. I kept thinking, why, why did he want to sell me a wig? But it was a sort of Mohican wig. I thought it would look great. But anyway, they, they were selling watches and handbags and things like that. But when you looked at them, you could see they were fake. You know, who wants a Holex watch? And you could see they were just made of cheap plastic. or I think it was like Michael Paws handbags and things like this. Stuff that was obviously fake. Counterfeit. Once you've seen the real thing, you don't want a counterfeit, do you? You just see that they're counterfeit. They're, they're rubbish. Once we gaze on Jesus, once we see who Jesus is, we don't want a Jesus that is less than that. Because that is not who he is. We don't want a Jesus that isn't God. We don't want a Jesus that isn't coming back. We don't want any of these things because we have gazed... On Christ. By seeking Christ and him alone is how we get to see the hollowness of things that will lead us away. Knowing Christ, knowing the freedom that we have in him, knowing the joy of finding out more about him as we get into our Bibles together. Well, you know, we can still read this passage and think, well, this really isn't for me. What was all this about Barlam, son of Beza, who had to be corrected by a donkey? What has all this talk about false teachers got to do with me? Just You can read Numbers 22 if you want to know more about Baal, and we won't go into that now. But these words like heretics and false teachers, they sound like something from the Spanish Inquisition, don't they? They sound like words that we use as we point our fingers at people and accuse them of not being sound, of not being on board with actually what the Bible says. But what about me? What about you? There's a song um, by Rend Collective that I was listening to a while ago, and it has in it, it's called, the song's called Nailed to the Cross, and it has a line in the song that says, when I preach the gospel to myself. And you know sometimes, if you're listening to songs, there are lyrics that stand out because they're great, there are ones that stand out because you're not sure about them, and ones that you stand out because you think, I'm not quite sure what that means. This was in that, that sort of latter category, what does that mean? Sounds a bit like something from a preaching course. You know, we were saying in the preaching course, you've got to preach to yourselves before you can preach to other people. Otherwise, you end up being hypocritical. But this is a song. It wasn't a preaching course. But you know, the more I reflected on that line, the more I thought there's a lot of wisdom in there. Because when all has been said and done, when every sermon that I've listened to has been digested, when every book that I've read has been read, when I've sought the wisdom of the Holy Spirit collectively and on my own, it still gets processed through me through the sum of my experiences, through my own filters, through my own preconceptions, through what I know about the Bible and what I don't know about the Bible. It gets processed through my experiences, the past things I've done, the present reality. And so I find myself needing to ask myself a question. Is the gospel that I'm allowing to resonate in my heart the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it a gospel that is full of decimal points? Do I find myself justifying not loving my neighbour because I don't find that very good at times? And so I put a decimal point in and start to put a caveat against it. Do I ever find that perhaps rather than live with the hope of eternity, I start to cower in the face of the present? And I put a decimal point in some of what Jesus is saying about security and about knowing who we are in Christ. Or it might be about the way that we find ourselves living. Do we find ourselves compromising some of the teachings of the Bible about being honest? Perhaps when you're filling out your tax return, perhaps it becomes a decimal point, not on the tax return, but actually in our thinking about how we should be doing it. Or perhaps it becomes something in our relationships or in our use of time and money. You know, the more I've thought about that this week, the more I think sometimes I let myself be a false teacher to myself, if that makes any sense. I let myself preach a gospel that is not quite compassible with what is in the Bible. I filled the gospel with all kinds of caveats that were never there, things that Jesus never talked about. Now, I've not gone as far as 2 Peter chapter 2. You'll be relieved to know. But actually, I don't think we can move on to the encouragements of chapter 3 before we've asked ourselves that very serious question. What is the gospel that you are preaching to yourself? What is it that is resonating around in your heart and your mind? And is it exactly the same? as what Jesus spoke about and what the Bible reveals to us? Or is it full of decimal points? Is it full of decimal points? Psalm 139, a well-known psalm. The psalmist asked God to know him, to know his anxious thoughts, to see if there is any offensive way in him. We could perhaps even put there, see if there are any decimal points in me rather than offensive way if that helps you this morning and lead me in the way everlasting. So what I thought would be good to do as we bring this rather difficult passage to a close is use this as a prayer for each of us. To not use this passage to point the finger outwards but to use it to resonate within our hearts. What is that gospel that I'm preaching to myself? God, if you need to challenge me this morning will you do that? Will you search me? Will you know my heart? Will you test me and know what's going on inside? Why? So we can be led in the way everlasting. That psalm says it all. So what I'd like us to do, if you just want to close your eyes for a moment, or just stay with your eyes open if you'd rather, it doesn't really matter, I'm going to read these verses two or three times. The Puritans would often talk about praying in Scripture, about praying it in so that it gets deeply embedded in us. So, just as I read these words, make this your own prayer. That God, are there those things? Do you need me to do something today to get back on track with you? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way. Everlasting. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me And lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, I want to pray that these amazing words from Psalm 139 will be the cry of our hearts today. Lord, if we have settled for a gospel that is less, or if we have put caveats around the gospel, if what we preach to ourselves is less than what you preach to us, Lord, would you reveal it to us and lead us again in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May that be true for each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen.